Thank you, Paul, and thank you, worship team. It's wonderful to gather in God's presence. Uh, our numbers are down this morning, and after last week when it was packed out, it's hard to find a place to sit. And uh, we do understand the reasons, and yet uh, it's interesting that Jesus said, Fear not, little flock. It's the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Jesus was more concerned with who was following him than he was how many. And with that in mind, I'd like for you to turn with me in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 6, Gospel according to Luke, and um, verses 12 through 16. One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray. And he spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him. And he chose twelve of them, whom he also designated apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter. His brother Andrew, James, John. Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas. James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who is called the Zealot, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Thus far in God's word, let's ask for his presence as we consider it. Heavenly Father, this day I have nothing to say unless you have spoken. And I cannot proclaim it properly, nor even understand it rightly, unless your spirit enables me and us together to do so. But we are your people. We come with open hands as beggars, Lord, fully dependent upon the grace that you give to us in Jesus Christ and the working of your Spirit in our hearts and minds. So, Lord, we ask, change us today. Transform us for having been here in your presence and heard you speak by your Spirit through your word, for we ask our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to adjust the height of this if I can. It's, uh, well, I can't very well. The problem with uh, presbyopia, <laughs> old eyes, uh, it's not coming, that's all right, is that it's difficult to read at a distance for me. <laughs> Thank you, Tim. Uh, I'll continue on, and perhaps we can have some help with that. Thanks so much. Pastors today and uh, Christian workers are beset by voices offering answer to the perplexing question, thank you, of how to approach big decisions. And it's not only pastors and uh, ministry workers in the church. It's everyone, particularly believers, face decisions. Shall I marry this person? Shall I go to this or that college? Shall I take this or that job? Shall I move to this or that location? What shall I do? And there are best-selling books that assert that the senior pastor or you or I for our, our lives must be an executive and follow the business model for decision-making, scientifically and rationally, they say, working through the issues from A to Z with the best rational resolution thereby becoming clear. 
Just follow the steps. One, two, three. Books of this kind offer a logical, it seems, and scientific, perhaps, step-by-step process that tends to reduce complicated problems to simplistic and mechanistic by-the-numbers approaches. Then on the other hand of the spectrum are those who insist that the only thing needed is a rather mystical Zen Buddhist-like spirituality that simply senses intuitively the one best decision, use the force, Luke. And this approach is often characterized by pious assertions that I just felt led to do something or God spoke to me telling me to do something. And while perhaps that may be true, it's, I'm afraid, often used as an excuse to avoid the hard wrestling with issues, which they somehow view as worldly, to be neatly circumvented by their own personal direct revelation from God that doesn't need to look to the scriptures and to work through the issues. Well, we may well ask, what was Jesus' own approach to making big decisions. In the passage before us, Jesus needed needed to make a choice, and it was no small choice. Let's understand what's happening here. Oh, well, Jesus went, and he prayed for a while, and he called people to him, and he chose 12, and that was that. No, no, no. If that's all we think is going on in this narrative, we have missed the drama. Show me a book in the New Testament, a book in the Bible, that was written by Jesus' own hand. You won't find one. The whole Bible's about him, and he wrote not one word of it with his own hand, except as his finger etched the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, in stone on Sinai for Moses. And as his finger in John chapter 8 in the pericope there writes in the dust of the temple courtyards when the woman taken in adultery is drawn, dragged before everyone in public humiliation for the whole purpose of using her irrespective of the justice of God and the mercy of God in order to try to trap Jesus. Those are the only two times. Perhaps the finger inscribing on the wall in Babylon, many, many tickle you farson your kingdom. You have been judged in the balances and found wanting and your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Perhaps we could say that. We can certainly say that Christ, by his Spirit, wrote every word in the Bible, and we would be correct. But if you're saying that Jesus, in his physical, human, uh, public ministry on earth, wrote a book for us, you'd be wrong. And it was intentional. It was intentional. Others would write those books. It would be important that they write those books. But for Jesus, he would, to use the metaphor of the Apostle Paul later on in his epistles, he would be writing living letters written on the hearts of men, known and read by all. And those 12 would be important, as we shall see. 
Those 12 had a special place. There would be a wider number. He had other disciples, you know, at least 70 or 72, depending on the, uh, the uh, transcript that you follow in translating uh, Luke's gospel later on. And after he sends out the 12 two by two in chapter 9 of Luke's gospel, chapter 10, he sends out 70 or 72 more two by two. He had at least that number. More than 500 came to Galilee to see the risen Christ according to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If we uh, take that instance of over 500 at once with the only pre-announced appearance of the risen Christ in Galilee. There was a wider number. But 12 was important. Jesus would say, I've chosen you 12. You will sit on 12 uh, thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. He'd say that not once but twice. The apostles understood the significance of 12 in Acts chapter 1, chapter 2. They're in a hurry. What will we do to replace him? Jesus had said, wait until you receive power from on high. They prayed. He resorted to lots after finding two people that seemed to meet the criteria. Well, it had to be one or the other. Flip a coin. Ah, it landed there. Is that how Jesus made decisions? Christ made his own decision. And he chose an apostle. One who persecuted the church. Who hated Jesus. Whom he met on the road to Damascus. Changed his life. Called him as an apostle of Jesus Christ. No less than the other eleven there would be 12. 12 was important. Why? Well, it indicated the fullness of Israel, but not only the fullness of Israel, but of the redeemed Israel that included the Gentiles grafted into spiritual Israel, Paul says in Romans chapter 11. There would be thousands, no, tens of thousands and more who would listen to Jesus as he taught, as he preached in the temple. And who watched his life and saw the miracles he did. The healing, the feeding of the multitudes that were hungry. The ministering to those in grief. They would watch him. They would hear what he had to say. And there would be thousands of versions of eyewitness accounts. Of what people remembered he said and did. And what they thought it meant. And some of them would be pretty accurate and some of them would be far off indeed how would you know how would you know which ones to go by well Jesus was setting already a standard it would be the apostolic preaching of the cross the apostles would be those to whom he would speak in the upper room on the night he was betrayed and speak of the Holy Spirit's coming that he would cause them to remember everything that they'd been taught. He said on that night, I have a lot more to teach you, but you can't bear it yet. And his time seemed to be up. Oh, no, because he says, the Holy Spirit will bring everything to your remembrance, whatever I've taught you, and he will lead you into all truth. The living, risen Christ working through the apostolic establishment of the standard of what by the Holy Spirit's uh, inspiration and, and illumination, they understood the meaning of what Christ's life, teaching, death, 
and resurrection meant. And it's against that standard that all the other stories would be measured. And that's what gives us our New Testament. It is apostolic by the hand of apostles or of their amanuenses who wrote with them or close to them or lived during their lifetime. And, and the writings like Jude and James, the half-brothers of the Lord Jesus Christ, were accepted and by the apostles had the imprimatur during their lifetime. We have a reliable New Testament. Choosing these 12 was no small thing. Mark's Gospel, chapter 3, verses uh, 16, 14 through uh, uh, 17, 18, will, uh, talks about the same event. And, and we're told Jesus went into a mountainside to pray, and he continued all night, and he called his disciples to them, and he chose 12, he says, and appointed them that they should be apostles, sent with a special commission to carry out Raise your right hand. I did that years and years ago. And conferred on me was a commission with that was responsibility. That's nothing compared to the commissioning of Christ to these 12. That they might be with him, Mark writes. And that he might send them forth to preach. Preach what? Preach about Christ. What he's done, come to do, and what he has done, and, and yet what he will do in our lives. This was no small decision. So let's look first of all at what Jesus didn't do. That the world around us is, oh, do this, or this is a good idea, or hey, I just felt this way. Let's look to see what Jesus didn't do. And then let's look at what he did do and its implications for us in our decisions, not only about ministry, but you know, the Protestant Reformation reminded the church bringing us back to its roots in the New Testament, that all of life for every believer is holy. It's all ministry. There is special separated ministry, those who are uh, set apart for particular full-time ministry at, and that kind of thing, absolutely. But all of life for every believer is ministry. The word hagios, saint, is used interchangeably in the New Testament with believer. You're a saint if you're a believer. Oh, you have feet of clay. Every saint has. Our holiness is given to us, not earned. And it transforms us so our lives increasingly reflect and mirror the image of God in Christ. So here's what Jesus did not do. He avoided several pitfalls. First, he did not resort to means forbidden by the word of God, even if those means were popular and convenient. The Prince of Wales, uh, Prince Charles, the future head of the Church of England, is famously reputed to have resorted more than one occasion to seances. And uh, there are many that we know who uh, look at to the horoscope, you know, to see what astrology has to say. Or go to Madam X down the road who will read your palm or a crystal ball. Um, you know, summoning the dead, astral guides, astrology, foreign gods. None of those are things the Bible allows. In fact, it forbids them. Forbids them. And Jesus didn't use them. Jesus, secondly, did not resort to means instituted in the Old Testament, but 
unavailable to the people of God generally today. For example, the Urim and Thummim. We're not exactly sure what they were. Apparently two stones, stones, that were used to discern the will of God. Not used for reading, but in some way rather like the lot, but we don't know exactly how. And we know that ordinarily you couldn't get them to give any kind of an answer. Any kind to fall together in a way that was comprehensible. Only God could do that and give a yes or a no. But it was only used through the priest, usually the high priest, when the leaders of the people would come seeking God's direction and not knowing where and how to turn. So in the juvenile period of the maturation process of the people of God and their understanding of him, God gave that. He hasn't given it today. We don't have that. Never used in the New Testament. It was lost long before that a period of time of the Lord Jesus' public ministry. And Jesus didn't use it. He also didn't resort to means that had been occasionally sanctioned in the Old Testament for the very purpose of removing all human agency or involvement in the decision-making, for example. The allotment of who gets what as the tribes moved into the promised land. It wasn't decided by committee in a back room. <laughs> Political horse trading. Oh no, this came from God. It was by lot. We could give other examples. Uh, uh, the discovery of Achan's sin where God himself kept dividing the people down until it was one person discovered Achan after the battle of Jericho that he had stolen what was to be consecrated to God by fire. Jesus, fourthly, did not resort to public opinion polls. Hey, what's everybody saying? What do people like? Quite the contrary. We're told in John 2, verses 23 through 25, that, that many people believed on him. That word believed in John is used with different nuances. And here it's, hey, we believe he's special. It doesn't mean that they believe that he's the son of God and has authority over their lives. It doesn't mean that they recognize that before him they stand convicted and need to repent. It just meant, yeah, hey, he really does, can do these things. He's not a fraud. That's all it means. We're told Jesus didn't trust himself to them. He says he knew what was in man. He didn't need anyone to tell him what was in man. He knew what was in the heart. Of man. That contrasts with the common approach of politicians to govern by public opinion polls today. Why? The modern, postmodern assumption today that there are no transcendent absolutes that stand over us all, and that everything, therefore, everything is simply a matter of perception. That's good for us for now, it's good for you, that's good for them. Therefore, it can, it's a matter of who wins the spin contest. The Bible presents a different approach, that there are absolutes. There's a God who steps, who is outside of his creation, yet involved in it and over it. And he has the right and does exercise it to establish transcendent, lasting Absolute values that affect us all. Finally, fifth, Jesus did not resort to pragmatic application of conventional practice. 
There's no direct reference in the text to modeling the twelve upon the Greco-Roman schools that were popular throughout the Mediterranean world at that time, or upon the Jewish rabbinical practices, the rabbi schools. A rabbi would get uh, followers, he'd teach them, and after a while he'd say, okay, uh, kind of like a taekwondo master, now you're a master and you can be a rabbi, you can go out and have your own, start your own school. No, no. This wasn't that at all. The goal was nothing short of life transformation through their being with him 24-7. 24 hours a day, seven days a week. He was himself both the embodiment of what they were to become and the curriculum demonstrating the way, capitalized way. That's the term used in the beginning chapters of the book of Acts as a term interchangeable for Christianity. He's the way. He said, I am the way, both the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. So, if these are things that Jesus didn't do, what was it he did do in the text before us? Well, he exemplified a godly prudence in his decision making. Now, what do we mean by that? First, verse 12, he drew apart from the crowd in order to be able to focus on his relationship with God. Verse 12, we're told he went out to a mountainside. He wanted to be alone. He wanted to have that time with his heavenly father. Now, I want you to notice that to do so, he had to make some choices in ministry, and you'll have to make choices in your life. I'm fond of saying in a chess game, and life is not a chess game, but in a chess game, you can't make a move without <laughs> vacating a square that you previously, your, your chess men have occupied, in order to occupy a square that you had previously not occupied. There are choices. We have to do that in life. And uh, in, that was not different for Jesus. He withdrew from the public arena and that meant having to say no, at least for that interval of time, to answering some pressing needs of his growing public ministry. Listen, the afflicted would suffer a while longer. You hear that? The despairing would go without the good news for another day. Does that sink in? And yet, like us, Jesus had to make choices in ministry. His first priority before ministry, before the needs of those that he felt deeply for, his first priority was his relationship with his Father. And so must ours be. Second, notice that Jesus invested his life in prayer for an extended period of time. Verse 12, he spent the night in prayer. Now, we're not specifically told what he prayed about, but we can perhaps surmise that he had in mind the decision before him. For he had, after all, been mindful of it from the beginning of his ministry. He had said in Mark 1.17, in an early encounter by the Sea of Galilee, to his disciples, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. A significant part of his prayer <clears throat> all that night would likely have related to the selection of the twelve from among a larger number of disciples, as we mentioned, at least 70. And those whom he chose, he designated now apostles. And note by the 
purposive nature of their calling, that term expresses. Sent with a commission. And they were to be with him in a continuous and special relationship. There would be no hiding. No lack of transparency. What you would see is what he was. He would commit to them the keys of the kingdom, Matthew 16, 19. Establishing the gospel he had taught and exercising spiritual discipline. In other words, Jesus prayed long and thoughtfully over the method of ministry multiplication and he chose discipleship as his principal method of growing the church. And that's important. Because without the gospel that comes to us through the apostolic preaching of the cross, we have no beginning point. The beginning point for these 12, like the 70 and more out of whom they were chosen, was to be with Christ in the first place, to encounter him, to believe on him, to follow him. He says, follow me, and I will make you. I will make you fishers of man. What does it mean to follow Christ? Some say, oh, it means following him to membership in a particular church or denomination. Nonsense. That wasn't a part of what Jesus was calling them to do. It's good to be a member of a local fellowship. We're called on to do that. But that's not what ultimately following Jesus means. It's not how we're saved. Oh, it's, it's how you're baptized, the amount of water and where and by whom. It's not what saves us. It's not the key to following Jesus. What is it to follow Jesus? It's the apostolic preaching of the cross. To recognize that God himself had come in the flesh, lived among us the perfect life that we owed God, and none of us have ever been able to live. And laid that innocent life down willingly to die at the hands of wicked men in order that the wrath of God due to us for our sin, each of us, our individual sins, would be poured out upon him on Calvary. He would absorb the death stroke in our stead. Rise again, conquering death, showing that God's justice has been satisfied and his mercy and grace extended to us as the righteousness of Christ is now cloaked upon those who repent and believe in him, acknowledging him as Lord and thereby follow him. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Nothing more. And nothing less. Finally, Jesus acted upon the decision over which he'd prayed. Verse 13. He calls and he appoints. He did not wait for the decision to make itself. You know, decisions involve risk. Human nature naturally tends to be often aversive to risk. And we'd rather not make a decision that involves risk. We'll just let it go by, you know, and then whatever happens, happens. But here's the point. Not to make a decision is to make a decision. And there are consequences. And that's not how Jesus operated. He didn't wait for the decision to make itself. 
Jesus knew from the beginning what the risks were. He knew full well Judas's deceitfulness. In John 6, 64, we're told that Jesus knew from the beginning who it was who would betray him. But he did so to fulfill the prophecies of God. Yet he did not avoid or procrastinate making the necessary decision when from the word of God and in prayer to his father, it became clear. He appointed... Apostles. Now, the word appointed here is the same word used in the Greek translation, the Septuagint, of the Old Testament in Genesis 1-1 where God makes the heavens and the earth, creates it. It's the translation of the Hebrew word bara, and this new Greek word is the word for appoint. Jesus makes them apostles. He doesn't simply say, okay, um, you're going to be apostles. He doesn't say, okay, now uh, here's the official word and I, by this declaration, you're apostles. No, he makes them apostles. They are from that point on apostles, but they're apostles in making, as we shall see, <laughs> with all their faults. They don't begin arguing until after the great uh, uh, revelation of Christ at the Mount uh, 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 in Caesarea Philippi where he begins to, he asks them, whom do people say I am? And, and uh, oh, some say a prophet, one of the prophets, some say uh, John the Baptist to come back to life or Elijah. Whom do you say I am? Peter says, you're the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the promised one of God, the son of the living one. Blessed one. And Jesus said, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who's in heaven. And then he begins for the first time to explain to them what John the Baptist had meant on the day after his baptism, Jesus' public baptism, when he said to, to John and to Andrew, who were with John the Baptist, at that time, behold, as he points to Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. They begin to follow him. Jesus at Caesarea Philippi begins to explain that he will go to Jerusalem and suffer for us. Suffer for us. Die. Shameful death. And the third day be raised from the dead. And Peter says, whoa, 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 whoa. Uh, come over to the side here. Uh, you've just told me I have special, uh, uh, special insight from God the Father. So let me give you a little advice here. As your grand vizier, uh, this is not going to happen to you. And told Jesus, turned around and looked at the other 11 who are probably standing like this, watching the drama before them. And he rebukes Peter, get behind me, Satan. He just said, blessed are you. Now he says, get behind me, Satan. For you don't discern the things of God, but of man. And then he begins on his way to the cross, sending out his disciples two by two before him to the places he will go. But it's then that we begin to find the disciples fussing among each other for the first time. And what do they always fuss over? You get it. Who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he calls them short on it. Two of them come and, and with their mama, they're cousins of his, and they say, the mother says, uh, we, I, we want that you would appoint one to be on your right hand, the other your left hand when you come in your kingdom. 
they thought that they would do a coup d'etat over the other uh, ten disciples. And Jesus said, can you drink the cup I, can, I drink? Yes, we're able. You will indeed. But to give these positions is not for me. My father's already appointed them. And the other ten were angry. And Jesus had to settle it. Why? They're vying. The purpose is wrong. It's personal advancement, ambition, rather than what will honor the Lord, our Heavenly Father. See, Jesus had a lot to teach him. On the road, people are afraid as he's going to Jerusalem. And in the midst of this, they're muttering and arguing behind him. And Jesus said, what were you arguing about? And they won't answer. Why? They're embarrassed. Why? Because what they were arguing about again, he's on his way to Jerusalem. Who's the greatest? He has to take a child and put him in front of him. Teach him. Unless you become like this little child, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. On the night he's betrayed in the upper room, they fussing over what? Who's going to be the greatest? Oh, my word. Jesus, oh, Jesus, have you chosen wrongly? These 12 aren't ready. And in the upper room, he says, I have a lot more to tell you. Oh, is that an understatement? But time's up. Jesus, you're going to the cross. What will happen now? Ah, oh, he answers that. He speaks of the coming comforter, the Holy Spirit. And he says, the Holy Spirit will come on you. He'll bring everything to your remembrance that I've taught you. And he'll lead you into all truth. Jesus was not done with them yet. Some years ago, there was a... Uh, a well-known uh, <coughs> evangelistic uh, uh, conference speaker, and, and um, he would have these buttons, and, and they would say, PBP, G-I-N-F-W-M-Y, uh, which spells absolutely nothing, but, but stood for, please be patient. God is not finished with me yet. And whatever other uh, theological um, differences I may have had with the gentleman, uh, that was a good button to wear. Because all of us are on a pilgrimage home. Brethren, the Apostle John would write, 1 John chapter 3, now, now, we are the children of God. But, but it does not yet appear what we will be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. There are battles that are lost because the battlefield commanders feared to take action on plans carefully worked out. Let not the spiritual battles of our Savior be lost that way. Finally, Jesus' example demonstrated biblical wisdom. The biblical concept of wisdom is godly insight trustingly applied to life. Uh, Proverbs 1.7, where we read, uh, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. I learned long ago in the Navy that the rudder has no effect unless the ship has steering way. In other words, get up and move on how much you do know. 
and let the Lord God fill in the blanks. Jesus applied, you see, the scriptures. He knew the significance of the number 12. But he also took into account human organizational realities. He was aware of his social context and of the way human beings work together. If you compare the lists of the 12, and we'll finish with this, much more to say. Compare the lists of the 12. They're only given four times. Complete list. Okay? There's one in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. One each. And then you find it again in Luke's account in chapter 1 of Acts. Only they're not 12, they're 11. Why? Because Judas is missing. He is no longer living. And they are, apart from that difference, they are the same 12 people. Yes, a couple of the names, some of the disciples had more than one name. They went by, two of them. And one of them, of course, was, Barth- uh, was uh, uh, Simon. He's also called Peter. And sometimes Simon Peter. So they're different. But they're not different people. They're the same list. But listen. You compare those lists. You know what you notice? The first four are always the same first four. And order means something in New Testament days. The second four are always the same second four. Now the order is different in each case. But. They're the same four. And the third four, obviously, therefore, are the same four. Different order, different sequence, but the same names. With this exception, this exception, the first name in each foursome is always the same. Peter, Philip, James of Alphaeus. What does that imply? Applies an internal organization here. Jesus feeds the 5,000. He has his disciples have everybody sit down. That's 5,000 men, women and children, probably 15,000. Has them sit down in, in groups of 50 to 100. And then he has, he breaks the little boy's lunch, you remember, that was offered to him. Five small loaves, five loaves and two small fish. And from it, it's creative, you see. He feeds, as as Moses did the children of Israel, by God's provision of manna in the wilderness. He feeds the multitude. Who's passing them around? Who's organizing it? Who's carrying those baskets back? The twelve. How are they organized? There's an organization. But within that organization, two notes. One, uh, that Jesus didn't put Simon the Zealot whose background and instincts and visceral reactions had come out of the (laughs) zealot party. That's their uh, terrorist group, honestly. Palestine for the Palestinians, I mean only for them. Israel for the Israelites. Judea for the Judeans. And the occupying Roman army were targets. And any collaborators were also targets. And that certainly included tax collectors like Matthew or Levi. He'd been called from the tax collection booth. Left it and followed Jesus. Collaborator. Along next to, in the 12. Had to be in the 12, rubbing elbows with Simon the Zealot. Woohoo! You think there weren't some initial tensions there? But they were both called to follow Jesus. And as they did, their love for him and then each other spilled over. But Jesus didn't initially put them in the same small group of foursome. That's interesting. He's aware of what's going on around him. But you also notice that, um, that Jesus has three that he draws aside. 
three on three occasions that apart from the others she brings in the upper room with Jairus to heal his daughter. It's Peter, James, and John. When he goes up to the Mount of Transfiguration and he leaves the other nine behind, there are three that go with him. Peter, James, and John. When he goes to the, to the Mount of Gethsemane, the Mount, Mount of Olives in the Garden of Gethsemane to await his betrayer and he brings his his 12 with him are the 11 left because Judas is about to come as the betrayer with the, the uh, um, mob that will arrest him. So he had, leaves eight and brings three closer to where he'll be, a stone's throw away, Peter, James, and John. See, the intensive discipling is not the same as the organizational discipling. There's organizational and operational needs, and they're all being discipled. And then there is the intensive, purposeful need. Did he not know James would be the first of the apostles to be martyred? Of course he did. And that wasn't lost time. And John would be the last of the apostles to die. And Peter in the middle would exercise a great leadership role in the early chapters of Acts for the early emerging church in perilous days. Jesus was purposeful. You make decisions too. Not that momentous, no, neither do I. But momentous in your life and in the lives of those around you, whatever those decisions are. What Jesus didn't do is instructive. What he did do is more instructive. And uh, I would just say that in church, throughout church history, withdrawing from the world on the one hand, practice theology on the other, that's not proven to be effective. Jesus' parables and his references to common practices demonstrate how seriously he took his ministry's social context. He wasn't driven by it, but he was informed by it, and he held the, the transcendent values, the absolutes, of scripture above it. To do so takes thought and effort. It requires us to take seriously our culture and then discriminatingly to engage it. Jesus was no mere mystic, nor was he a mere methodological pragmatist, mindlessly following some by the numbers procedure. Instead, he looked to his father first and last, prayerfully reflecting upon the decisions he faced in the light of the scripture and the realities of his ministry context, engaging his mind rationally and trustingly to discern the wisdom from above. So must we. And although we, unlike Jesus, are finite, cannot know what is in the hearts of others as he did, we do have the promise of his presence as we go forth in his name. Lo, I am with you always even to the consummation of the age.